You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. I saw an article the other day showing photos of the uh, buildings, the auditoriums, the uh, stadiums being built for the next Olympics. It's two years out, and they're already building these buildings in Tokyo for the next Summer Olympics. What's, what's your favorite Summer Olympic event? Any of you into gymnastics, you enjoy watching the gymnastics? I know I'd give at least one hand there for my granddaughter. Yeah. <laughs> Volleyball. A few of you, yeah. How about um, some of the swimming events? You're into swimming. You're like, yeah, I see those hands. Is there another? Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe you enjoy the different track and field events, 100-meter, uh, 100-meter. Some of you like the middle distance, long distance. Steeplechase. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Uh, Steeplechase doesn't get a lot of hands normally. Uh, Steeplechase, the guys that do the steeplechase usually don't get a lot of TV coverage, and they don't get the big contracts from the shoe companies. Uh, Steeplechasing doesn't seem that popular among most people. Are you familiar with the steeplechase? Yeah, not a lot of no's. It's a 3,000-meter event. It's just just under two miles. And the steeplechase... Uh, has all kind of obstacles along the way. I found one photo of a uh, famous obstacle. It's actually a wall uh, that has a, a water pit on the other side. And the steeplechasers have to get over that wall and get over as much as the water pit as they can in order to continue their race. Um, sorry, but not everyone has a good experience with a steeplechase. And um, yeah, you see a lot of this if you watch steeplechase, people hitting the water and tripping. And uh, amazingly, it actually, not in the Olympics, but in other steeplechase events, it's actually been run in under eight minutes, which is amazing to me uh, that someone can do that. Yeah, the steeplechase. The steeplechase in some ways, thank you, the steeplechase in some ways reminds me of life itself. You see, the steeplechase got its name originally. In fact, the uh, steeplechase is a very, very old horse race. It originated in England and Ireland couple hundred years ago, in which the uh, finish line, the goal was a steeple of a church building, which was usually the highest point uh, of any edifice in the community, and they would pick the steeple off in the distance, and then the horse and rider would have to go cross-country over obstacles, over pitfalls, and the first one to the church with the uh, steeple would win the race, thus steeple chase, and it's become a foot race as well as a horse race over the last couple of hundred years. But if you think about the steeplechase, that you've got to go cross-country, over obstacles, over pitfalls, and somehow finish the race, isn't it in many ways a picture of life itself? That we're all running a race. And the race has obstacles, the race has pitfalls, that somehow we must get over. I've enjoyed looking for the imagery of races in the New Testament that are pictures of the Christian life. And one of them that's very personal is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. When he was toward the end of his public ministry, he was actually headed toward imprisonment. He met with some of his mentees, some of the men he had discipled for leadership at Miletus. And he said this, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task 
of testifying of God, the news of God's grace. Paul said, I don't even consider my life worth anything. I just want to finish the race God's given me, the race of telling people the good news of the gospel. You and I have a race to run too. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You and I, fellow Christians, running a race with endurance. And if you think about your life as a Christian, you're living it out day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And along the way, there are some pretty challenging situations, aren't there? Obstacles, difficulties, pitfalls. And as we think about life here in this fallen world, the Christian life here in this fallen world, we have to ask the question, well, what what enables us to get over those obstacles? What enables us to get past those pitfalls successfully until the day that the Lord calls us home and we can say we have finished our race? What keeps us on course? What keeps us going? What will enable us, by God's grace, to finish our race? This morning we want to look at a man who had a spiritual steeplechase to run. And along his journey there were many obstacles, pitfalls. And yet God enabled him to finish his race. Please join me in Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. And as you turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, let me remind you that God had put in Nehemiah's heart a particular task to do. Nehemiah credited it to God himself. He said, God put it in my heart to go to Jerusalem, which was not where he grew up. He grew up there in Persia, but he was Jewish. But God put it in his heart to go to his homeland of Jerusalem and to lead those people in rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the people in Jerusalem. As Pastor Mark preached two weeks ago, there were external threats of violence coming from the neighboring countries. And Nehemiah had to get over those obstacles. He had to get over those pitfalls of these external threats of violence from the surrounding tribes. In chapter 5, as Mark preached last week, internal threats, internal struggles, internal obstacles. As the well-to-do Jewish people were taking advantage of their lesser enabled financially fellow Jews. They were taking advantage of the poor people. And Nehemiah as a leader had to deal with that as well. Now the wall is almost completed. The gaps are filled in. The parts that have been devastated have been rebuilt. The only thing left is setting the doors and the gates. But the enemies of God's people are not giving up. They had not succeeded in getting the people in Jerusalem to stop their building. They were not successful in getting the wall construction stopped. And yet, they're going to try another tactic. What is that tactic? We read about it in chapter 6. It is this. We'll take out the leader. We can't get the people to stop building the wall. Let's take out the leader. Let's destroy Nehemiah. You know, Satan often uses this tactic. He will try to destroy or at least slow down the work of God by taking out the leader. He'll lay the enemy. Satan will lay various obstacles and pitfalls before the leader as he's running his race. 
trying to trip him up, take him out, keep him from finishing the race that God has given him to do. Nehemiah serves as a picture, if you will, a shadow of the leader. And here in Nehemiah chapter 6, I think we can identify four pitfalls, four obstacles that the enemy laid out in front of Nehemiah trying to stop him from finishing his race. We'll look at each of these pitfalls one at a time. The first one is found in the first four verses, and I'm calling this pitfall distraction for you note takers, distraction. Follow along as I read Nehemiah chapter 6, the first four verses. Now when Sunballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakkepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And they answered them in the same manner. What are these people trying to do? As you might recall from previous studies here in Nehemiah, Jerusalem was surrounded by people that were antagonistic to them. If you look at the T and Tobiah, You'll see uh, Bethlehem and to its left, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was surrounded by Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem. Um, these people that wanted to stop God's people from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem were making it hard. They had tried and tried to stop them. And now they're saying, come on up, you know, 25 miles or so to the northwest of the plains of Ono. And let's just Nehemiah, let's just have a talk. You know, let's be friends. Let's see if we can find out some way that we can live peaceably as neighbors. Did Nehemiah jump at this opportunity to leave the work and make that trip down to the plain of Ono to meet with these people and have these supposed peace talks? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no to oh, no. Now, Nehemiah, probably by the Spirit's prompting, maybe just knowing the history of these people and their opposition, he realized he was discerning this was a trap. This was a pitfall. He says, they want me to leave the safety of Jerusalem, to travel out there to the outskirts of our country, the outskirts of Judah, and and they're going to try to do me harm. They're going to try to do me in. Maybe he was even suspecting suspecting them of trying to assassinate him. And he says, I'm not going to do it. You're not going to trick me. I mean, if you want to talk to me, come talk to me here. I've got work to do. But he wasn't going to leave the work to go have these supposed peace talks, realizing that they were actually devious, wanting to hurt him. And Nehemiah was so persistent in saying no, wasn't he? Four times. You know, you think about that. I mean, sometimes people ask you to do something that you don't really want to do, and you say no, and then they ask you a second time, and a third time, and about the fourth time, you say, okay. You know, you, and you just give in in order to get them off your back. And, and, and you can almost imagine Nehemiah wanting to do that, kind of like, I'm getting tired of these requests. I'll just go and get it over with. But no, he was persistent. He was persistent. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Nehemiah knew what God's calling on his life was. His calling, at least this period of his life, 
was to lead the people of Jerusalem in rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the people of God. He knew what God had put in his heart. He knew what God wanted him to do. And he wasn't going to give in to this distraction. He wasn't going to leave the work God called him to do in order to run over here or run over there to just to appease these people's appeals. You know, our enemy tries to do that with us too, doesn't he? He tries to distract us. You know, and sometimes people try to make the will of God so complicated when actually a lot of it, a lot of it is pretty obvious. He's given you a calling in your life. Let me just pick some illustrations here. A number of us in this room are married. For those of us married men, we're husbands. You married women, you're wives. And we don't have to wonder every part of his calling on our life. I know I'm called as a husband. I'm called as a father. I'm called as a grandpa. I have relationships in my family that I'm called to. You have relationships that you're called to. He's called us to be part of the body of Christ. That every member of the church has ministry to do. We're all given gifts and responsibilities. And he wants us to serve his people well. He, he wants us to evangelize the world to tell people about his son Jesus Christ. And we all know we have these obvious callings in our life. They're, they're written in the book. It's black and white stuff. And I don't have to wonder, should I devote myself to being a husband? I'm already told... Love your wife as Christ loved the church. I'm already told that. Should, should I make time to disciple my kids? I'm already told. Bring them up in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. Should I be pouring the gospel into my grandkids? I'm already told that one generation tells the next generation of the greatness of God. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to sit around and fret. I don't know what he wants me to do. He's already told me of a lot of what I'm supposed to do. Should I serve in the church? Should I evangelize? He's already told me. And so Satan comes along and he says, well, you know what, why don't you just leave that and come over here? And it's tempting sometimes. It's tempting to say, well, these people want me to come talk to them. These people, and, and here there's this calling on our life, and yet Satan will try to distract us from it. And he's taking to take us from God-given ministry in our life. We need to be very discerning. It's interesting, looking in the Bible for verses about Satan, the devil. I was looking this past week and I came up with these. How about 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen? that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan tries to present himself as the good guy, an angel of light. He, he tries to present himself as someone who will bring us knowledge. And, and yet, Paul also said to the Corinthians in that letter, he said, we're not ignorant we are not unaware of his schemes, his devices. And you know, if you say, well, I, I don't know that much about Satan. I don't know that much about his devices. Can I just give you one piece of advice? Thank you. Why don't you just spend some time in Genesis 3? Just spend some time in Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, we see the serpent leading Eve and Adam into sin and if you look at that, spend time in there, stop and think, okay, what's he, what's he doing to Eve? What are his tactics? You're going to notice in Genesis 3, right at the beginning of our Bibles, that the tactics that Satan used, the serpent used with Eve, are the same ones he uses today. He tries to get us to question God's love, God's integrity, God's word. 
He's always wanting us to question God. Did God really say? Isn't God holding back on me? And he'll try that with us. And so if we are going to be persistent in resisting the evil one, we need to be aware of his schemes. Paul says we're not ignorant. We're not, we need to be discerning, even as Nehemiah was with his enemies. And we need to be very persistent. Let me speak very pastorally. Satan can come and distract you with reminders of your failures. And, and he comes, and, and probably any of us that have been Christians for any length of time have had seasons like this. We go through seasons. Some of you are plagued by this. My heart goes out to you. Where Satan will come and will whisper in your ear, you call yourself a Christian. Who do you think you are? I know how you live. I know the way you are. And we listen to him. And we listen to him and we begin to think, maybe he's right. Maybe I can't do anything for the Lord. Maybe I can't fulfill the obligations the Lord's put before me. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't even try. that song we sing when Satan, Satan tempts me to despair tells me of the guilt within what do you do friends what's the next line do you remember upward I look upward I look and I see him there I see him there Jesus there who made an end Satan comes, our enemy comes, and he tries to distract you from finishing your race. He tries to distract you from doing what you know he's called you to do, reminding you of your failures. We can, in the power of the gospel, we can say to him, take it up with my Savior. Don't come accusing me. I've been washed in the blood. I don't belong to you anymore belong to him. You got complaints against me and there are plenty you could have. You take it up with him. Oh friends, we have plenty of faults. The point isn't that we're faultless. Oh, we're full of faults. Full of sin. But we're covered in the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus is our hope, our security, our safety. The safety of the gospel. And when Satan tries to pull you off course, he tries to get you to fall into the pitfall. You say, no, Satan. No, you, you take it up with my Savior. Paul said this to Titus, so that Titus would teach the people on the island of Crete that it is the grace of God, it is the gospel that teaches us, and I quote, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we can, in the power of the gospel, say no to our enemy when he comes and tries to pull us out of the race, trip us up into the pitfalls of discouragement in life. Nehemiah resisted the temptation to distraction. He got over that pitfall. What's the second pitfall? Look at verses 5 through 9. The second pitfall, I'm calling this defamation. Defamation of character. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. 
And it was written, and here's what was in the letter, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, talking about the emperor back in Persia, so that now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say may have been, do have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and they will be not, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Four times, four times, these enemies of Jerusalem appealed to the leader, Nehemiah, leave the work and come talk to us. And he said, no. The fifth time they sent an open letter. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Letters, back then, if they were serious, they were private, they'd have been rolled like a scroll, string around them, wax seal. This letter was very deliberately open. These enemies wanted everyone to know what was in that letter. If they were alive today, it wouldn't have been a private letter in an envelope. It would have been posted on social media. It was the same kind of thing. It would be like posting your complaints on social media. They knew everyone would read that kind of letter. The letter is filled with untrue accusations. Seeking to defame Nehemiah, trying to get the people to not trust him anymore, to just and they were saying things like, everybody's saying this, Nehemiah. Everybody knows you guys are going to rebel. You're gonna, you want to be king. How did Nehemiah navigate this pitfall in front of him? Does he buckle under the pressure? When people accuse you wrongly, when they slander you, or in this case, libel you, when, when people slander you, what, what, what do you want to do? What, what do you want to do when people, has anyone ever slandered you? I imagine if you've been alive long enough, that's happened. And if you're in leadership, the opportunities to be slandered increase. What do you want to do if someone accuses you of something that you know is not true? Yeah, I want to make it right. I want to defend myself. I'm going to get out there and pour my energy, pour my time into making these people realize that what they're accusing me of isn't true. You know, and we just pour ourselves into defending ourselves. And yet Nehemiah dismisses it with a few comments. He basically tells these people, you've got a very wild imagination. <laughs> Nothing like that has ever happened. Uh, and you know what? You don't deserve my time. I've got work to do. And that's it. He gets back to work. And he prayed, didn't he? Lord, strengthen my hands. I think Nehemiah felt his weakness, don't you? I mean, if you read the book of Nehemiah, just notice how many times he just pauses and prays. What's that tell you about the man? He realizes the strength of the Lord, and he realizes his own weaknesses. He says, Lord, strengthen my hands. I'm sure it hurt to be accused like that. What about us? You and I are sometimes accused of things. Now, let's be candid. You and I have sinned plenty of times, and we have failed people many times. And sometimes accusations people have against us are true. None of us is without fault, without sin. There's plenty, plenty of true things about us that people could accuse us of. I 
when, I'm, when I struggle with this, I try to remember something Charles Spurgeon said back in the 1800s at, to the men in his pastor college that he had in London. And he said, when people accuse you of something, be thankful that they do not but know you better. <laughs> I think about that. <laughs> be thankful that people do not but know me better. Oh, there's plenty of truth that people could accuse us of, but sometimes people accuse us of things that, that aren't true. It's just they're not true. They're false, and it hurts. If you're currently struggling with this or when you, when you struggle with this in the future, this pitfall that could easily distract you from the calling God's put in your life, let me encourage you to look to Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus models for us how to handle slander. Jesus was, not, he's not only someone we put our faith in, but he in his earthly ministry had faith in his heavenly father. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.23 that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And there, there are times in life when people are going to accuse you of things that just aren't true. Now, rather than getting just so beaten down by that that you fall into the pitfall and you quit serving the Lord, take the pain, and it is painful, take the pain of that slander and entrust it to your Heavenly Father. That you go to your Heavenly Father and you say, even as Jesus did, and you say, Father, you hear these accusations. You know the truth. You judge justly. You know these accusations, Lord. You know how much it hurts me to hear them but I leave them with you. Personally, this is my simple-mindedness, but I picture myself going into the throne room of God and I lay those on his lap. And then I back away. I don't want to hold them anymore. They're in the lap of my heavenly Father, the one who judges justly. And I can trust him with the pain in my heart of being accused wrongly. I can trust him with that. He'll deal with it in his timing and in his way. I can leave it with him. Jesus did that, and we're called to do that. In the book of Revelation, John calls Satan the accuser of the brothers, Revelation 12.10. He will try to discourage us by laying these pitfalls of accusations. How could we ever accomplish anything for God? We need to go to our Heavenly Father and entrust Him with the pain in our hearts. And when we're accused, we need to remember the truth of the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34, it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So we pray, Lord, strengthen my hands when we continue our race. There's a third pitfall in verses 10 through 14. And I would call this pitfall despair. Despair. Verses 10 through 14, Nehemiah 6. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, 
should such a man as I run away? And when man such as I, what man such as I, could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they should give me a bad name in order to taunt me. And now this prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Despair. Shemaiah tries to get Nehemiah to compromise his integrity in order to save his own skin. He tries to scare him. It almost sounds like something out of a horror flick, doesn't it? They're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. You you can imagine Nehemiah going to this guy's house. The guy says, they're coming to kill you, Nehemiah. They're coming to kill you by night. Run, Nehemiah. Hide, Nehemiah. And he's trying to get Nehemiah to leave the work and save his own skin by hiding in the temple. What's Nehemiah's response? can't do that. For one thing, a leader, a godly leader, doesn't abandon the flock in order to save his own skin. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Nehemiah says, I'm not, I'm not going to run away just to try to save my own skin. And he says, I'm not going to sin. Why would this be sinful for Nehemiah? Why would it be sinful? He wasn't a priest. Only priests were allowed inside the temple itself. And Nehemiah knew that. He knew the word of God. He knew the word of God. That only the priests were allowed to go into the temple. And only then after the sacrifices and the washings. And he says, for me to go in there and hide would be wrong. It would be sinful. I won't do it. And he realized even though this man was labeled a prophet, that God had not sent him. That prophets need to be tested according to the word of God. And Nehemiah heard this guy saying, let's go into the temple and hide. And he knew right away, that guy's not sent by God. Because God never contradicts his own word. And so, I'm not doing it. And he realized that this guy was paid off by the enemies to try to scare Nehemiah into sinning and leaving the work. What about us, friends? Satan will try to get us to compromise our spiritual integrity at times by sinning. And as the angel of light, he can make sinning look appealing at times. To sacrifice our sexual morality. Sacrifice our integrity by lying to preserve our job at work or to save face or to protect the reputation of a friend. And it looks like the right thing to do, but it's against the word of God. And we ought not to sin in order to save ourselves. We need to hear the hiss of the serpent. Whenever someone appeals to us to sin against God in order to supposedly save our own skin. Peter says, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. One more pitfall. Verses, I'm going to drop down to verse 17, 18, 19. There's one more pitfall, and I would call it just simply drained. I read this and read this trying to think, what word comes to my mind? And the word drained came to my mind. You look at verses 17, 18, and 19. See if the word drained comes to your mind. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah 
sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by him by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and the son of Jehoinan, and taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. That would be so draining. You think of everything Nehemiah has been through. You think of all the hurdles he's jumped. You think of all the obstacles he's overcome. All the pitfalls he's avoided. And now as the wall is just about done, it's people he knows. It's people within the city. It's people that he's generally related to as fellow Jews. And what are they doing? They're collaborating with this enemy. They, they have these ties to Dubaiah through marriage and through commerce. And so here these are people that should be Nehemiah's supporters, Nehemiah's friends. And they're writing letters to the enemy telling him what Nehemiah is doing. And, and they're coming back to Nehemiah and they're telling him, oh, Tobiah's really a good guy. Think of everything Nehemiah's already been through. And these guys are trying to convince him, Tobiah's really a good guy. And, and after a while, that would just be so draining. This is from the inside. These are my friends, my neighbors. Why are they doing this? And it would be so draining. It would get old real fast. And yet we know that Nehemiah persevered through this. How do we know? Look at verses 15 and 16. We skipped those, didn't we? So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in the 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The wall was done. Nehemiah, if you follow the the, the uh, calendar of the Persian Empire, it only six months has gone by since Nehemiah heard from his brother about the walls in Jerusalem. Six months. And at least two of those months were taken up with traveling to Jerusalem. So everything's moved along rather quickly. In fact, Nehemiah tells us from the time they started to the time they finished building was only 52 days. This was uh, without power equipment. You know, this, this was done by hand. And that wall is almost two miles long. And these people, under Nehemiah's leadership, rebuilt that wall in 52 days. Those were long, hard days, faithful days. And their leader never abandoned his post as their leader. Despite the obstacles, the temptations, the threats, he never abandoned his post that God had given him to lead the people in rebuilding that wall, rebuilding the city of God. Of Jerusalem. The wall was done. He finished. Friends, God's given us tasks to do too. We all share some of these in the book. And providentially, He's given others of us this responsibility or that responsibility. He wants us to serve Him. He wants us to faithfully obey His commands that are based on the truth of the gospel. How are you and I going to successfully navigate the race? If you think about the day you were saved, 
until the day the Lord calls you home or Jesus comes back. Between that day and that day is your race, your race to run. And it's marked out for us, the author of Hebrews says. It's, it's not up to you to figure out where to run. It's marked out for us. We call it the book, the Bible. How are you going to successfully get to the finish line? How are you going to successfully get to the end of your life? Knowing that you finished your race successfully. Satan will come along and he'll try to discourage us so that we just want to quit. He'll try to trip us up. He'll try to get us off course. He'll lay pits in front of us. And the only way you and I are going to get to the finish line is by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, the first three verses of Hebrews. It reminds us of Jesus. The author of Hebrews has just walked us through what many have called the Hall of Faith. All those Old Testament saints who ran their race, some through great obstacles, some dying in the course of their race. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he begins to talk about the author and perfecter, the beginner and ender of our faith, Jesus Christ. That Jesus himself had a race to run. Jesus himself was sent to this earth on a mission. Even as Nehemiah was sent to Jerusalem, Jesus Christ was sent from the palace of heaven, if you will, to this fallen world, this devastated world, in order to redeem his elect. And along the way, Satan tried to stop him. And if you read the gospel accounts, you can see these. Even before Jesus was old enough to know what was going on in his earthly capacities, Satan was trying to stop him by leading Herod to kill the infants of Judah, hoping he'd catch the Messiah in the process. And he missed him because God had sent him to Egypt. And then we read that account in Matthew 4 of Jesus out in the wilderness. And now Satan, time and time again, tried to distract Jesus, tried to pull him off of the journey, the mission that God the Father had given him. And every time Jesus successfully, successfully resisted the evil one. And even in Gethsemane, when Jesus was faced with the agony of taking on the sins of his people on the cross, he didn't shirk, but he went to the cross to bear our sins. And the Father saw what his Son had done and raised him to life. This proof that everything he'd done was good and right and and sufficient to satisfy all the Father's righteous requirements. Jesus ran his race. He ran his race. He, he completed his race. And now the author of Hebrews says that you and I are to run the race marked out for us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, quite frankly, people like Nehemiah, who ran the race, he says, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Listen, the author of Hebrews says, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. My friends, you and I often fall into the pitfalls. We trip over the obstacles. But we have an author and perfecter of our faith who didn't, who didn't trip up, who didn't get waylaid. He successfully ran his race. And so by his grace, he picks us up and gets us moving again. And you and I fix our eyes on the author, the perfecter of our faith, and we run the race marked out for us. If we lose sight of our Savior, if we lose sight of him and his gospel, it would be so easy to get off course, so easy to leave the race. And so we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to preach the gospel to one another every day. Remember whose you are. Remember Jesus. He enables us to run our race. And one day, the Apostle Paul realized that it was his last day. He was to be executed as a preacher of the gospel. And he said in his last letter that we have, Second Timothy, he said, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but on all who love is appearing. To all who love is appearing. And I want to encourage you. Not just with Nehemiah, he's but a shadow of Jesus himself. The one who completed the task of redeeming us, the elect. And because we are in him, we too can run our race. And like the Apostle Paul before us, empowered by the grace of Jesus Christ, one day we might finish our race. And then those most, those most blessed Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happy rest. I want to challenge you. And I hope you challenge me to run the race. Despite the obstacles to run the race, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Looking forward to that one that day in those words. Let me pray for us.